Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where I, along with a cast of fellow book and movie nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. A couple of warnings real fast. Yes, there will be some barnyard language. Yes, we will do all the spoiler things. We want to be able to talk in depth about the endings, so proceed with caution. You can listen to all of our past episodes if you go to kmmamedia.com, click on the Pages and Popcorn podcast link, and see a back catalog of all of our episodes. One last thing, if you want to support the show, of course, there's Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or you can do the best thing of all, rate and review us and tell your friends to listen. The more listens we get, the more likely I am to keep making shows. Okay, that about sums up the intro. Thank you once again for joining us on today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. First we read the book. Yeah, yeah. Then it's movie time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time to talk. Yeah, yeah. And you know we're feeling fine. Because it's pages and popcorn. It's pages and popcorn. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today, Matthew and I will be discussing Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. We will talk about the book which was published in 1936, 1937. And we will talk about the 2004 Agatha Christie's Poirot A&E episode, Death on the Nile, as well as the 2022 Kenneth Brada major motion picture, Death on the Nile. We will not be talking about the Death on the Nile that happened in the 70s, because honestly, we didn't want to sit through it a third time. Also, we wanted to make sure that this episode could actually be listened to and wouldn't be too, too terribly long. So hello, Matthew. Hello. How are you? I'm right groovy. I am full of curry and hard cider and ready to talk about death <laughs> on the Nile. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. You know what I just realized? But the last book and movie combo that you and I talked about was The Dig. And one of our things that we said about The Dig was, wow, this is very British. And now <laughs> Death on the Nile, which was also very British and actually of a similar time period. Not exactly the same time period, but there were there are some definite similarities. That's interesting. It had not occurred to me until just now. The first book we did together was King Solomon's Mines, which was also very British. Yeah, And as we'll get into it, it was very British in some of the same ways that Death on the Nile was. That is true. I suppose our non-British book and movie combos that we've talked about have all been for the crossover episodes with Ghostthropology, Amityville Horror. Amityville Horror. Yes, Calamityville Horror. And The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Those were our- The Mothman oh, Prophecies. The Moth That's right, The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, although we did do The Big Sleep, which- is very, very American. That's true. And we will be doing another of a similar type. But, faithful listeners, we will tell you more about our next book, 
later because right now we need to talk about this book, Death on the Nile. We have put it off Yay. for too long. I can't make this intro any longer. So here we go. I'm rearing to go. Death on the Nile. So Death on the Nile, work of detective fiction, British writer Agatha Christie. She needs no introduction. Like I said, it was published in the late 30s. And this is one of the Poirot mysteries. So she had some Miss Marple mysteries. She had some Poirot mysteries. She had, I'm saying some, it wasn't some. She had a lot. Anyways, here we go. Here's the book recap. The book starts off with us bouncing around the countryside, getting many exposition dumps from random people. There is the heiress Lynette. She's very rich. She's very beautiful. And lots of people are jealous of her. She has a friend named Jackie who is not very rich, but who never wants to borrow money from Lynette. However, she does have a request. See, Jackie is in love with a simple man named Simon. Uh, he's also not rich. She wants Lynette to give him a job. Lynette says that she just might do that. She agrees to meet the young man. We move on. It is now three months later. And Hercule Poirot, I can't say his name. Hercule, right, so, is it Hercule? Hercule Poirot. Okay, okay got- so here's throughout this episode, we're probably going to be making fun of his name and mutilating it just so that everybody knows we're making fun of our own inability to uh, pronounce French words. We're not making fun of French. Or Belgium people or anything like that. Yes, for sure. Um, I got Poirot down. Um, although, strangely enough, I call him HP in all my notes. So every now and then as I was like practicing today, I was like, blah, blah, blah. And then Harry Potter said, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I went to HP Lovecraft. Oh, <laughs> well, that's because you're an olds and I'm a youngs. Moving on, we have encounter hero. Hercule Perot. Hercule, Hercule, Hercule. That's just a Hercule. Hercule. We move on to HP, who's on holiday in Aswan. He's he's getting on, ready to board a ship, a steamer, sorry, called Karnak. It's set to tour along the Nile River. He notices Lynette and her new husband, Simon. Dun, dun, dun. The readers are told, another exposition dump, that the rumors have it that Lynette stole Simon away from Jackie. Well, anyways, these two are now on their honeymoon. They look very happy, very in love. And then Jackie shows up. She doesn't do anything, but she is there. And it is obviously a huge bother to both Lynette and Simon. So Lynette asks Poirot to deter Jackie from hounding and stalking her. Lynette kind of has this idea that she can pretty much buy anything. But Poirot refuses this commission. And then he does unsuccessfully attempt to dissuade Jacqueline from pursuing her plans. But she cannot be dissuaded. And she's like, it's too late. I love him so much. She shows Poirot her little gun. She talks about the fact that she's like obsessed and that, you know, Lynette is evil for stealing him away. And Simon's really just kind of simple and stupid, but she loves him so much. But it's all Lynette's fault that he left her because that's that's what makes sense to Jacqueline. Anyway, Simon and Lynette decide they're going to give Jackie the slip. They're going to escape, get on this boat. Anyways, nope, she's there too. She's already on the ship when they get on the ship. So, oh no, they've been thwarted. The other passengers, our little set of characters, include Lynette's maid, Louise, her trustee, Andrew Pennington, who just happened to be there. What a marvelous stroke of luck. There's also the romance novelist Salome Otterborn, which I just call Salome the rest of the time, and her daughter, Rosalie. There's also Tim Ellerton and his mother. 
There's the elderly American socialite Marie Van Schuyler and her poor cousin Cornelia Robson, and also Van Schuyler's nurse, Miss Bowers. There's also an outspoken communist named Mr. Ferguson. There's an Italian archaeologist named Ricchetti. There's a solicitor named Famthrop. There's an Austrian physician named Dr. Bessner. And if you're like, oh my God, that's so many characters. You're right. There are a lot of characters in this book. Anyways, while visiting one of their little ports of call and looking at Nefertiti's tomb and such things, Lynette narrowly avoids being crushed to death by a large boulder that falls from a cliff. Jacqueline, of course, is suspected of doing this, but she was actually still on the boat, so it can't be her. And then another character arrives, Poirot's friend, Colonel Race. He boards the steamer for the return trip. He tells Poirot that he is seeking a murderer among the passengers. So, multiple mysteries. The following night in the steamer's lounge, Jacqueline expresses her bitterness towards Simon. Then she shoots him in the leg with a pistol, but immediately breaks down with remorse and kicks the pistol away. She's taken to her cabin by the two other people who were present, which was Fanthrop and Cornelia. Simon is shortly brought to Dr. Bessmer's cabin for treatment of his injury. Fanthrop looks for Jacqueline's pistol, but reports that it has disappeared. The following morning, Lynette is found dead, shot in the head. Her valuable string of pearls has also disappeared. Jacqueline's pistol is recovered from the Nile, wrapped in a velvet stole that Miss Van Schuyler had reported missing the day before. It appears that two shots have been fired from the pistol. Then we get into the part of the book where it's just a lot of interviews, of people giving their stories and their alibis and Poirot asking a lot of questions and muttering to himself. And to sum up, whilst interviewing Louise in the cabin in which Simon is resting for some reason, Poirot notes oddness in the words that she uses. Miss Bowers, that nurse, returns Lynette's pearl necklace, which was stolen by Miss Van Schuyler because apparently she was a kleptomaniac. However, Poirot realizes that it's merely an imitation of Lynette's genuine pearl necklace. He also notes two bottles of nail polish in the victim's room, one of which intrigues him. Then Louise is found stabbed in her cabin, and Mrs. Otterborn later meets with Poirot and race in Simon's cabin, claiming that she knows who killed the maid. Simon loudly declares his surprise, and then before revealing who it is, Mrs. Otterbaum is shot dead from outside of the cabin. They still don't know who's the murderer. Then Poirot confronts Pennington over his attempted murder of Lynette by pushing the boulder. Pennington says, oh, yes, that was me. I, I, I couldn't help it because apparently he'd been speculating unsuccessfully with her inheritance. He came to Egypt to have her sign paperwork because he thought she wouldn't notice. But of course, Lynette was like actually reading the paperwork. But Pennington has cleared because he was so flabbergasted. And of course, he only thought about trying to murder her, but he didn't actually murder her. And well, that's the end of Pennington. Nobody cares what happens to him after that. And nobody really follows up with the fact that he'd been embezzling. Oh, one last thing about Pennington. He did have a revolver, and it was his revolver that had been used to shoot Mrs. Otterbaum. But again, he's totally cleared. So then Poirot recovers Lynette's genuine pearls from Tim. It seems that Tim had had this interesting jewelry thief ring going on with his cousin where they traveled to rich people's houses and then made copies of their jewelry and then stole the jewelry, yada, yada, yada. Poirot gives Tim a talking to and Tim returns the actual jewels. And then there's no consequences for him as well because Poirot doesn't care. It's not murder after all. And Tim just gets to go off and be fine. More on Tim in a minute. Okay, now Race has realized that Rochette is the man that he's looking for. Nobody cares but Race, and so good for Race. And the authoress, Otterbaum, has a drinking problem that her daughter has been trying to hide. So that's why they're here. 
I suppose. And then Poirot tells Race, Bessmer, and Cornelia that Simon is the one who killed Lynette. The murder was planned by Jacqueline. The pair are still lovers. Lynette had deliberately and unabashedly tried to take Simon away from Jacqueline, and so Simon had decided to go along with it so he could murder her for her money. But afraid of the none-too-bright Simon being caught and executed, Jacqueline had concocted what she thought was a foolproof plan. So this is how they did it. On the night of the murder, Jacqueline deliberately missed Simon with that gunshot. Simon fell down and pretended that he'd been shot using a bottle of ink, you know, on the handkerchief. Then everybody saw red on the handkerchief and they assumed that he had been shot. So anyways, when Farthop and Cornelia were distracted by Jacqueline taking her away and keeping her from killing herself and yada yada yada, Simon took the pistol, went to Lynette's cabin, shot her, placed the nail polish bottle that had contained the ringing back on her nightstand. Then he returned to the lounge and shot himself in the leg. Simon then used the stole to silence the pistol loaded in a spare cartridge to make it seem that there had been only two shots fired and then threw the pistol overboard. Louise had witnessed Simon entering Lynette's cabin that night, and so she had hinted to Simon when Poirot was interviewing her. She was planning on blackmailing him. Jacqueline, again in an attempt to protect her lover, had stabbed Louise to death. Mrs. Otterbaum had saw Jacqueline entering Louise's cabin. She went to tell Poirot. Simon had raised his voice to alert Jacqueline and she had been in the next room and she'd immediately ran off, grabbed the gun that she knew about and shot Otterbaum before the truth could come out. Poirot confronts Simon. Simon confesses. He is arrested. So are Jacqueline and Rachetti. As the steamer arrives at their destination, the passengers are disembarking. Jacqueline gets off the boat and then she shoots Simon and then she shoots herself with another pistol that she just happened to have. So now they both get to escape the gallows and they die there on the gangplay. And uh, Poirot is pressed and he reveals that he'd known that she had that second pistol. He had chosen to allow her to take her own life. Also, epilogue here rosalie mrs otterbaum's daughter who was trying to cover up her drinking and tim have decided to get together and be married so there's that and oh ferguson that communist guy he tried to woo cornelia but she was not interested and well she was interested but not in him she's now engaged to the doctor and again there's no repercussions for pennington or tim and this is Poirot's justice the end I didn't note it in my recap, but there was also a lot of misogyny and racism and fat phobia. And we will talk about that. That was the book and it came out in the late 30s. And then they made a movie in the 70s, which, like I said before, Matthew and I did not watch. But then A&E had a series that was called Agatha Christie's Poirot. It aired on ITV from January of 1989 to 2013 at a total of 70 episodes. Very, very popular. And season nine, episode three, they covered Death on the Nile. And I'm not going to do the whole recap because it's basically the same. There's a couple of changes that matter. Here is my little list. There's a lot more sex and candles, but a lot of sex. Early on, we understand that Simon is very concerned about money. Lynette does cocaine in this adaptation. There's fewer clues to the bad guys, but the scene with the maid... Louise talking out loud is not overly subtle. There's really no other bad guy on the trip. In fact, several characters are missing or merged, but none of them that really matter. Another big change is that Tim is, in a creepy, creepy way, very much into his mother. And when Rosalie tries to get with him at the end, he is like, no, thank you, because he loves his mom. It's gross. The ending is pretty much the same. Again, there's really no consequences. I guess technically Pennington had, he maintained in this that he had just tripped and the boulder had fallen and it hadn't been anything else. So there we go. 
Otherwise, it was a pretty faithful adaptation. There's a few other little changes that we will talk about. But that was basically it. It was a pretty, you know, almost scene for scene, straight up adaptation. Okay. And then in 2022, Kenneth Brada made another version of Death on the Nile. And this is a sequel to his Murder on the Orient Express which came out in 2017. Apparently there's going to be a whole, you know, the, the Brana universe of Poirot. They're going to be doing these big stylist movies. And uh, I have notes on the next one that's coming. We can mention that later. There are a lot more changes in this version. First off, we get an extended sequence about Poirot's time in the war, World War One, where he saved people and then how he got scarred and eventually lost his true love. We move into the modern time of the story. There's a lot of real sexy dancing. Somehow this dancing is more risque than the actual sex that we saw in the other adaptation. We meet the whole cast. Here again, there are some changes. People are way more diverse. There are actual people of color. And some of the characters are again left out or changed. Bowers isn't a nurse anymore, but the secret lesbian lover of the American socialite, Van Schuyler. Van Schuyler is not quite the same now. She is the godmother of Lynette. The Allertons have now both been renamed and there's no creepy mother-son combo. Tim's been renamed to be Book and he is actually friends with Poirot. The story progresses. It has the whole same thing. The broken engagement, the trip, the Nile, the murder. Other changes are that Tim or Book is killed. So I guess his sins of thievery are accounted for, although his thievery was like a momentary passion, not a, like a you know ring of jewel thieves. It was like, I went in and I just wanted to steal the jewels because, oh my gosh, you know, I want to get away from my mother and this was my chance to do it. It was an impulsive thing. And he's in love with Rosalie, who is now the niece of Mrs. Otterbaum, who is no longer a kind of sex crazed authoress, drunkard lady, but is a very, very fashionable, very stylish jazz singer. And Rosalie is her niece. And Rosalie and Tim Book are in love. Her aunt, Mrs. Otterbaum, uh, she is not a drinker. She's very awesome. And she and Poirot have this flirtation thing that that I'll get to in a minute. But also Tim Book's mother is not interested in Rosalie. She thinks that she's not good enough. So there's a little bit of a classist, racist, classist kind of thing going on there. In fact, the Tim Book's mother had hired Poirot to spy on Rosalie to make sure that she is worthy of Tim. And Poirot says that he is, you know, that she's wonderful and Tim would, you know, could, could not possibly do better than to end up with her. But then, of course, Tim Book dies. So that's the end of that. We also have the doctor who is now the ex-fiance of Lynette because that's totally somebody you bring along on your honeymoon. Instead of the lawyer guy who was swindling her, we have her cousin who was kind of still basically swindling her on and on and on. Everyone is connected to each other. So that's a really big change. Instead of being random strangers, strangers on a, on a boat, we have everybody's connected to Lynette. Six degrees of Lynette. They're part of the wedding party. That's the explanation they give in the movie. Right. Everybody's connected. We got former friends and, and former lovers and a godmother and on and on and on. There's no communist again. The characters are simplified and tied together. It goes on. It's sexy and whatever. Very stylized. The murders happen pretty much the same, except that, that we have an actual tension-filled chase towards the end. And Book Tim's death is what happens instead of Mrs. Otterbaum's death. And that really rattles Poirot. 
Tim Book did steal the necklace, like I said, but, you know, just trying to escape his mom. Poirot tells everyone the actual details. Uh, not much has changed. Jacqueline had, you know, d- done the whole fake thing and all of that stuff. Jacqueline goes ahead right after he reveals the whole thing, does her murder-suicide right there in front of everybody, much more of an impulsive action. And then they're all kind of done. And Poirot tries to talk to Salome Otterbaum, but he can't because, you know, he's still too traumatized or something and then we see that it's six months later and he is watching her in a club as she practices in the dark and he doesn't have his mustache anymore and wikipedia says the point here is that he's unrecognizable i would like to think that maybe he has removed his mustache aka his armor and he's ready to love and maybe she knows that he's there because yes i might hate love but i like romance the end can I just say, we'll, we'll talk a lot about the movies and we'll talk about probably a lot of what didn't work and what did work. But one thing I actually genuinely liked in the 2022 is the flirtation, not quite romance between Perot and Salome was like just weirdly adorable. Yes, it was very good. It was it was flirty in the in this very 1930s British kind of flirty way. You know, it's all very it, like prim and proper <laughs> but but it was also very sweet it and was. i liked that yeah i i did too and i like that the fact that he ends up there because even with that it is a bummer ending <laughs> yeah. like it's a bummer ending in all the iterations but at least the 2022 movie isn't as much of a bummer because you're like okay well he went to her club maybe he'll talk to her maybe she or maybe they already did talk and we just didn't get to see it so there's hope there Although, mm-hmm. again, we have so much more Poirot. Uh, one of the, the the changes that I didn't note it, but I guess I'll say it now, is that in this movie, he is present in a lot of places or like right around the corner. His, his ability to to see what's going on in the 22 version, we're definitely getting it all from his point of view. Whereas in the A&E, not as much, but definitely in the book, a lot of things happen that Poirot is not involved in. He's not there. He's not watching it. He gets told about it later, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a little bit of a different forced perspective. It's, it's, I mean, it's Kenneth Brada and he was clearly the star of the movie. So it makes sense, but it is kind mm-hmm. of a different mode of telling the story. I think that they tried to merge the Hercule Poirot story with tropes of the hard-boiled detective in the 2022 film. Mm. And I, there's a lot of things that I just kept finding myself thinking, this would make sense for Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade, but it doesn't make much sense for Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple. Mm. One of the things that really struck me at the end, throughout the film, I kept thinking this Poirot feels very different than the book version or the uh, television version that we saw. And it it all kind of clicked at the end of the movie where he walks into the room to do the explanation of who is the murderer and how. The big reveal. And he has everybody trapped by the ship's crew in the room and he blocks the only entrance with importantly a 45 automatic pistol and he's very threatening in a way that the character never is in the book or in the other version of the uh, the other uh, television version we watched he's clearly traumatized we open with him you know being in world war 1 and suffering some trauma which is, is interesting because apparently i looked this up in the novels he's quite elderly when world war 1 occurs so he wouldn't have been in that war anyway. Mm. 
he's connected to people. He's looking in on a lot of corruption. He's taking the CD case of checking in on someone to see if they're good enough for her son, as opposed to, you know, the more classic puzzle mysteries that Hercule Poirot tended to be in. And all of that is very much like the hard boiled detective tropes. Yeah. And, and I, before we move further into that hard boiled detective, as we, I just want to say it's a very different character in the book. Mm-hmm. Lynette is like, will you talk to her? I'll pay you to talk to her. And he's like, no, I'm not taking your money because to him, that wasn't, that wasn't what he did. That's not his job. He's a detective, but he did talk to Jacqueline because he felt obligated to, because from a moral standpoint, he wanted to save her from making bad decisions in the Kenneth Branagh movie. We have a man who took, basically a spy case like a you know kind of like a just a pi getting dirt on somebody you're not getting dirt on somebody which is not the kind of case that you would think real poirot would have taken and you're right he was traumatized book just died now the character of book was in the murder on the orient express played by the same actor and so and in that movie he was kind of like the sidekick character of Poirot and he was kind of the sidekick character here too but then suddenly oh no he also stole a necklace and oh no now he's dead so in this new Poirot universe that is being created we don't have book anymore and so I think that it was an interesting choice to to have that repeated character you figure he's probably not the murderer and he's probably gonna live but then you know he dies so Poirot is traumatized by that and that makes him more human than in both the book and the A&E thing where he is very much an other. He's outside of this whole thing. He's not personally connected. And so you're right. That is a big difference. And I'll say I I did not care for the 2022 movie, but I actually liked Poirot better in that movie than I did in either the book or the other more faithful adaptation. It felt like he wasn't as smug. Mm-hmm. Which again, I he, he really... It basically felt like he was the Belgian version of Sam Spade, as opposed to the Hercule Poirot brainy detective that we get from the uh, book. Yeah, I I didn't really care for him in the book. I was not rooting for him, but he wasn't really a character. He was a plot point. He was the thing who was solving the puzzle and then would then explain the puzzle to us, the readers. That was his whole function. It, there's, he's not there for character development. In the 2022, they not only expanded the cast, you know, in, in terms of the diversity of the cast and gave some of the characters more interesting backstories, but they gave him a definite actual backstory and gave him some character development. So, you know, again, because they're making like this multi, you know, they're making a series basically, even though I guess technically Poirot was part of a series, but the, the point of the Poir- Poirot books my understanding anyway of Christie's Poirot books was not about Poirot. He was just the easy audience identification, like the easy, um, not audience identification, but the the red line, the red thread that would just follow us through all of these different things. He functioned in a similar fashion to Sherlock Holmes in that he was this intellectual detective, but he was different in that he was a much more toned down character, whereas uh, Sherlock Holmes was this bizarre eccentric in those stories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not here, too. He didn't mention his little gray cells in this book, which is interesting because that's definitely a Poirot thing, but it's just not in this book. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. so should we talk about the book? Definitely. Uh, One of the first things I have to tell you, 
audience about this book is that it is super, super racist, like, like not subtly racist. And I'm not going to repeat all the things because that nobody needs to hear that. But they, they are in Egypt. And the way they talk about the Egyptians and the locals is really dismissive and horrible. It, 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 they compare them to flies. They, they call them bad names. It is, it is awful. It is so uncomfortable. There's also a lot of rampant misogyny in this book and, and some fat phobia. So yikes. I should say you and I have both read a lot of literature from this period in time. This was not unusual. I didn't think that Agatha Christie was particularly bad compared to other things written at this point in time, especially a lot of the crime fiction. But she was definitely very British in that she was only really concerned with people of a particular class. There's there's a book by Edward Said called Orientalism, and he talks about how the... Um, Middle East, North Africa, and West Asia is treated in, you know, a lot of European literature and politics. And you see this book's like a case study in everything he talked about. The local people are just sort of downplayed. They're there kind of as a nuisance. Yes, there's these great monuments, but the monuments exist largely for the Europeans to come and appreciate because the Egyptians themselves, of course, seem unconnected from it, which is just bizarre. And it's very much concerned about the British as a colonial power just kind of being a given. Of course, they're in control. Mm -hmm. The Egyptians can't control themselves. The British have to come and do it. And that's the attitude that Agatha Christie seems to take throughout the book. Yes. I'm going to read a quote from a thing. The one character who does arguably speak up for the Egyptians is denounced as a communist full of venom. That's Mr. Ferguson. And even he fetishizes Egypt as a land of perfect workers who apparently don't see death the same way the West does. After one murder takes place, he callously remarks to another steamboat passenger that she should, quote, look on death as the Oriental does. It's a mere incident, hardly noticeable, unquote. Another murder suspect remarks, quote, there's something about this country that makes me feel wicked. It brings to the surface all the things that were boiling inside of me, unquote. So it's not just that there's people using language and descriptions that today we would say, well, that's not appropriate. It's it, it just it seeps through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. This this And everything you said there, if you read Orientalism, calling that stuff out, you know, the idea that these people don't view death the same way that Europeans do, which I mean, is kind of true, but they still don't want to be killed. Right. You know, they're not looking forward to it. The idea that the Orient, which would have at this point in time been considered the Middle East, West Asia, and so on, was this place where the Europeans could go and, you know, essentially sow their wild oats or let their wickedness run free was a common theme in a lot of literature as well as part of the colonial policy of um, the governance of the area by European powers. So yeah, it, it was just, it's interesting that I read that book uh, last year and then I read this one. It's like, yeah, this is exactly what Saeed was talking about. Well, and then it's also interesting because obviously this is a quote unquote cozy mystery. It is the whole point of this is just to have somebody die or maybe more than one person die in a 
confusing manner so that we can solve the puzzle. And that's fine. It doesn't actually really matter that they're in on the Nile. It doesn't, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. They're on a boat. It, they, they could have been on the Orient Express. They could have been, you know, at a British house, you know, for the weekend. They could have been on a steamboat on the Mississippi. It doesn't matter. And so I, I know it doesn't matter, but there's there's part of me that wishes that it did. I think mm-hmm. in the hands of an author who maybe wasn't just churning out these paint-by-number mystery books, the fact that they were in Egypt, like maybe the setting should have mattered. Maybe the tombs of the people that they were looking at should have like had a parallel or or been symbolic representations of the trauma that was going on on the boat or something. Like, can you imagine if if there could have been parallels if they had looked at the at the tombs of these ancient people and in some way had it had connected or or there'd been a moment of of self realization or anything and and it's just not there. It's just trappings to be trappings and i find that frustrating because i think that in literature the authors make choices and i think that the choices that they make should have some kind of connection or resonance with the story that they're telling and in this it just didn't even freaking matter that they were in on the nile yeah you could have set it on the space shuttle you could have set it on a you know a mississippi steamboat you could have set it on a train same story i'd contrast it with one of christie's contemporaries in a book that we read the big sleep the Big Sleep works because it's in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That story, you'd have to do some pretty significant changes to that story for it to be set anywhere other than Los Angeles. Right. The city matters. And it feels like this should have mattered as well. Especially when we do spend some time talking about the tombs and, oh, this is Nefertiti's tomb and who was she and how did she do this? And then like, there's a little archaeology, many, you know, this guy's talking about how these things work and blah, 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 and like giving us a little bit of history. And I'm like, this is really cool, but it's not actually relevant. It's just here. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it, it, it's like there's a travel log that somehow got <laughs> accidentally mixed into this puzzle mystery. And apparently one of the, I mean, that kind of is because Christy would travel with her husband who was an archaeologist, and then she would write... Good for nothings. <laughs> and then she would write about, you know, the places they went and saw. So, like, on this, on that hand, I can be like, okay, she'd gone there, and she was like, this is really cool. I want to make sure I put Nefertiti's tomb in one of my books. And I would just say, okay, but it should matter which book. <laughs> it should matter mm-hmm. that it's Nefertiti's tomb. Like, Nefertiti is a very interesting character in history, and to just be a prop here for no reason is is it was frustrating a lot of this book really frustrated me i mm-hmm. i'm not a huge mystery reader i like suspenseful things and i like things that make me think and wonder and keep me engaged until the end but this type of thing where you know it's going to get resolved we we talked about this off off air but there's the kind of mystery where enough clues are in the text that you could solve it as you read and then there's the ones where it's just like ah but i noticed that the author didn't bother to tell you dear reader was that there was a bullet in this table like okay and this book is kind of that it gives you so many red herrings and it gives you so much information but there's no way to actually figure out how everything happened because we're not Poirot and he knows things that we don't know. But at the same time, the who actually did it, I freaking called as soon as it happened before either mm-hmm. the second and third murder happened. Listeners, I was working in the other room. She came in, handed me a three by five card. I'd read the book already. She handed me a three by five card and said, 
here's what I think happened. I'm halfway <laughs> through the book. And then she went back into the other room and finished reading the book. I looked at it. There were a couple of details that were off, but she absolutely had the people who committed the crime and she had most of how they did it. Right. Right after the first death, right. At, you know, because it just, it was so obvious. It was so obvious that there was one man left in the room with the gun. She kicked it under a chair. Then she, they left the room. There's one person in the room with the gun. They come back. They take him out of the room. And now the gun's gone. I'm like, well, dude, obviously he got rid of the gun. It even said that the window was open. Okay, so now I know he's thrown the gun out the window. Why would he throw the gun out the window? And then it like unspools after that. Like, okay, okay. I didn't know about the the ink or the whatever because that was a little bit more vague. And it didn't really, that Wikipedia thing that I read earlier was a little bit more detailed, actually. Like in the book, it's like he just was messing with the bottles on her nightstand. And then later he's like, by the way, one of these was ink. And then we're like, okay, whatever. I find that a little bit frustrating because the trope of something being overly predictable personally doesn't work for me in literature. It works for me in other mediums. I love Law and Order SVU. That's pretty predictable in its own little sandbox world. There's twists, but you know, you know what you're going to get when you turn on the Law and Order episode. But in books, personally, the predictability of it was frustrating. What about you, Matthew? So I think if I had read this book as a teenager, I would have really enjoyed it because uh, you know, the first novel I ever read was Hound of the Baskervilles. I read all the Sherlock Holmes stories and all the Sherlock Holmes novels at some time or another. And I read a number of other mysteries. This is the first Agatha Christie book I've read, but I had read quite a bit of the stuff uh, up until my early twenties. I used to love this, the idea that you're kind of playing a game with the author and you're trying to see if you can figure it out before the author reveals it. But I think reading this, I realized that, okay, I'm going to try to say this in a way that's not judgmental <laughs> because I, I genuinely don't mean this in a judgmental way. I outgrew this and let's be clear. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a childish thing to enjoy, but I'm saying there was a point in my life where I found this very stimulating and then my tastes changed and I no longer do. I think you can grow into this sort of thing as well. But for me, I went through my phase where I liked this in my late childhood through my early 20s. And now I just don't. I don't find it particularly interesting anymore. So I'll say that I think that if you were somebody who likes that, if you like the idea of playing the game with the author of trying to figure it out, you'd probably enjoy this. I didn't. I think that the writing style itself doesn't help that. I think if you, this is an Agatha Christie book. It reads just like an Agatha Christie book. It is an Agatha Christie book. You could plop yourself in the middle of almost any Agatha Christie book and within a couple of pages know that you're reading an Agatha Christie book. And that's great. And if that's what you want, that's what you want. And that's good. But it is, it is repetitive and it's a lot of dialogue where people are repeating things or saying things and then telling somebody else what they said and going back and forth. And it almost feels very padded because there are so many red herrings. And I don't know, somebody probably has done this on the internet. I don't know how many red herrings is normal for an Agatha Christie book. I don't know if this is like, you know, a, a gluttony of red herrings or if this is normal, but there are so many red herrings that it it was a little frustrating. But but one thing I did like about the book, and I think they actually did a decent job in the 2022 movie. I think actually they, they did better in the 2022 movie, is that everybody on the boat had a motive. Mm -hmm. And in the in the book and the A E TV special, they are not connected. They're they're technically strangers, 
but there is very loose connections. It's like this person knew somebody who blah, blah, blah back in the day, you know? Okay. So that's like, there's their motivation, their potential for being a suspect. And the 2022 movie, it was real obvious. We're all part of the wedding party. We're very closely connected to Lynette and literally everybody has something. Now, some of those reasons are a little bit vague. Oh, when Lynette was a child, she was racist towards Rosalie one time. But then she stopped being racist towards Rosalie and then they became really good friends. So is that a motive to kill you, her, like years and years later? Probably not, <laughs> you know? So some of those motives were a little, mm, but at least they were there. And the, the fact that it was connected and these were connections was, was again, interesting. I think it, it's a very different story to have a bunch of people you know on a boat and then somebody dies versus having a bunch of strangers on a boat and then somebody dies. It, they're kind mm-hmm. of two different stories. You know, I went and looked up a lot of people's analysis of Agatha Christie's writing in general. Mm-hmm. And I, I discovered that there's basically three schools of thought on Agatha Christie. There's the people who don't like her writing, And they almost all seem to say the same things, which are they find her writing to be just sort of workmanlike and uninspired, and they get tired of trying to solve puzzles. Very often they talk about it being repetitive, you know, so very, you'd definitely be in that school. I guess I'm in school number one. (laughs) Okay. Then there's the people who say, yes, her writing's very workmanlike. Her books are puzzles. It's basically like doing a crossword puzzle or Sudoku. It's a game. Her writing is exactly what you need for that. And hey, you know what? Fair enough. I got no beef with those people. Sure. I I think that they've got a good point. Most of the people who like her writing describe it that way. But I have discovered that there's a very small number of people, one of whom, and the person who I kept coming across was Sophie Hanna, who was hired to write a continuation of the Hercule Perot novels. And they will say... No, Agatha Christie was actually a brilliant writer, and you all just don't get it. And by the way, her characters are not the two-dimensional plot devices you all say they are. They're very deep characters. It's just that you don't understand their depths until something's revealed at the end of the story. You know, Again, this is the only Agatha Christie novel I've ever read. Maybe there's a point to what they're saying, but Sophie Hanna and the other people who I saw who brought this up, kept pointing to death on the Nile is a great example. And no, these characters are two-dimensional. Oh, we learn more about them when what they did is revealed. Yeah, but what we learn about them is stuff that's essentially convenient for the plot. It's part of the puzzle. It doesn't really tell you anything about character depth. Yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> People, unsurprisingly, you know, we were talking about how the 2022 movie turned him into kind of a hard-boiled detective in the mold of like Chandler and Hammett. People in most of what I read kept comparing her writing to Chandler, Hammett, and uh, other American uh, detective story writers and saying, you know, people compare them unfavorably to these American stories, but she was doing something different, which is true. She was. She was writing puzzles. Whereas the American crime fiction writers, some of them were just trying to write action stories, but a lot of them were engaged in pretty heavy social commentary. Well, and I, and I do think that there is some social commentary here. I think that it's just half baked. Well, OK, I, I think. OK, I think that it's there. I think that it's subtle. I think that you have to see it as part. This is a part of a whole, a whole series. Like, you know, take it as part of all of her books or like, you know, a good chunk of them. It's hard to see it in just one example. But 
most of the Agatha Christie canon goes back to that interwar period between the two wars. And mm -hmm. they almost all have this the sense um, they're talking about that loss of the certain kind of life, one life, one society things being kind of replaced by something new, like a, a big change in society, right? Okay. Our detectives, Miss Marple and Poirot, are older and established and part of the establishment, the old guard that is being changed. They're being replaced by the younger, wilder characters with their different politics and their different economic stations and that, that we can have multiple economic stations mingling with us and whatever. And like they, they, Marple and Poirot, see these younger people with their loose morals. And it's up to Marple and Poirot to right the wrongs and to reconnect the world and like, you know, put things back into the boxes where they're supposed to be and give, give order and stuff. And so that is a type of social commentary. Now, whether or not I agree with Miss Christie that this change is is bad because it seems like what she's saying is that these these changes are bad. I definitely disagree with that, but that is definitely a theme that's happening, and we definitely see that in in this book. Fair enough. You know, the construction of the imperialist identity is so deeply embedded in the bedrock of literature literature. Whether this comes as depictions of war and veterans or, you know, reckoning with the legacy of colonialism or whatever it is, but it, it definitely has that us versus them kind of a thing in a lot of British mm. literature. And this definitely has Christie's own interest led her directly on this path. Her, the crime novels require an us and them reality. It's usually in the form of the evil other, because even cozy mysteries demand that there's an outsider lurking you know, and even if they've become part of the inner circle, like their motives are suspect. If you think about it, it's Simon who doesn't fit in. He's, you know, he's the one who wants the money. And then Jacqueline, by her love for him, is is pulled off, of course. And then the two of them do all of their murder and 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 what have you. But it's definitely us versus them, the old guard, the new, all of that stuff. It, it's like I said before, it's very, very British. Yeah, I'm very British of a particular. So Agatha Christie is the 20s and 30s equivalent of a boomer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I would contrast that again, and uh, I, I, it's not unimaginative to do this because everybody I read in preparation was doing the same thing. But you compare that to the American school of crime fiction that was occurring at the same time. The detectives are part of the mess. Mm -hmm. You know, the murderer or thief or whoever is part of the mess. The police are part of the mess. There's no us versus them. There's just the big mass of us that is a wreck. Well, and I think that that kind of goes to in American culture. We don't have the same kind of class system. We have a class system. Let me be very clear. That is we like to we like to tell ourselves we don't, though. OK, true. But but we do. And even the ones that we do, it's not stratified unless you're in somewhere like New York with high society, which is its very specific small world. But America's mm. big. We're a lot bigger than England and we don't have a monarchy <laughs> and we have this rugged individualism and like a lot of our American identity is wrapped up into that. And so it makes sense that in American crime fiction and, you know, it wouldn't be about the gentleman detective who, who you know, traveling about and solving things and, and whatnot. That is very much of a, a British European conceit. Mm -hmm. the, the American detective is a working schlub. Yeah. 
because yeah. that's the everyman and that's what Americans really like. We like the heroes that are, you know, of the people. So, I mean, then that kind of gets to the question, then should we keep reading Agatha Christie? Should we keep making Agatha Christie books into movies? Or is that like something that maybe needs to stop? I think the question of should we keep reading things from the past? Yes, for two reasons. One is for some people is just going to be a pleasure in it. If you, again, if you like the puzzle mystery, odds are you're going to like this. But there's another reason, which is that in order to be able to figure out where we want to go, we kind of have to know where we were. Agreed. And be and reading something like this and understanding that, you know, the casual racism, the casual misogyny, the, you know, kind of imperial outlook where the people who already live there just don't really matter that much. That's important to understand. And so, yes, I think we should continue reading Agatha Christie and, you know, other writers from that time period, just like I think we should read H.P. Lovecraft. That guy was a raving racist, but I think we should read him because you need to understand that mindset so that you can avoid falling into it. And I don't want to derail us into a whole conversation about cancel culture, <laughs> but it is, I feel like, kind of relevant. There's been a big discussion in some circles that I am loosely associated with about Gone with the Wind and whether or not we should still be watching Gone with the Wind, because there is something to be said that this was epic and it changed I mean, it was it was a huge phenomenon and all of these things, proto-feminist and, you know, yada, yada and beautiful score and like all of these things, but also glamorizing slavery and like maybe not wholly accurate or maybe definitely not accurate. And also like very a very antebellum rose colored view of things. And that's not great because it of the way that it's treated, there's, you know, the consequences or the lack thereof. And what I would I don't know exactly where I fall on all a lot of this, but I would say that I think we should read Gone with the Wind, but I don't necessarily think what we should watch Gone with the Wind. Does does that make sense as a distinction? Because I feel like one is saying here is a is is this thing in history and we can read it and we can think about it and we can discuss it and we can teach it in school and say, look at this, this is wrong. But you know, what does this tell us about not the period that it's portraying, but the period in which it was written? like an Agatha Christie book. I think that you could teach this in a class. In fact, I've taken classes where we read Agatha Christie books and we talked about the time it was written, like we've just been doing now, not necessarily about what it's portrayed versus today in 2023, making another Agatha Christie movie because all the changes that have to be made in order to make it palatable and i don't know if we need to keep revisiting the well of or like make up new things we know we've seen knives out and glass onion we know <laughs> that they can make modern day puzzle movie mysteries that don't have to be taken from a source material that you have to cut a bunch out and and merge things and change this and blah 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 make something new instead of going revisiting a well of something that's not that's kind of tainted that's that's my view so I'm going to bring up something that I never thought I would bring up in a discussion of Agatha Christie, but that's Looney Tunes cartoons. Okay. If you know anything about animation history, you know that the Looney Tunes cartoons that Warner Brothers made in the 1940s were extremely racist. So that left Warner Brothers with this quandary of what to do. They wanted to release a lot of this to DVD, but they weren't really sure what to do with something that was just so 
frankly, highly offensive. And if you cut the offensive parts out, then you were left with snippets of animation that made no sense. So what they ended up doing was they released them on a DVD set that included an introduction by, I think it was Rex Reed. It was a film critic. I think it was Rex Reed. I don't remember for sure. But what the film critic did was he talked about the historic context in which these were made. And he talked about the fact that, you know, it was important for us to understand what was happening in the world at the time. And I don't just mean, well, we were at war with Japan. So of course we're going to show Japanese badly, but also talk about this led to things like the Japanese internment, which we now consider this tremendous historic wrong and to give them a historic context. And I think that, you know, you can do the same thing with Agatha Christie with Gone with the Wind. I mean, okay. Disney tried to do that now on a lot of their movies. Like if you queue up Peter Pan on Disney plus, there's a thing at the beginning of it that is like, this movie was made in a very specific time and the depictions are blah, 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 blah. Okay, people don't care. They just zip right through it. And even though Disney has put that message up on a bunch of their stuff, they have not made Song of the South available because <laughs> there's yeah. no disclaimer you can put at the beginning of that that would negate. Because even if you couch it and you talk about it people engage with the with movies in a in an escapism i don't want to think i just want to enjoy kind of white which is valid like i'm super here for it but having a lecture ahead of time or after fact or you know if, even if you cut in halfway through a movie and we're like by the way kids this is bad and blah blah blah, blah it i don't i don't see that as a solution well i i don't think you're going to get away from people wanting to read or watch a lot of this stuff. And I think that making that available is probably the best approach you can have. I'm certainly not advocating censorship. Let me be very clear. I'm just saying from a personal standpoint that, yeah. Right. But I, what I'm saying is if you make these things available, uh, if you make the discussion available to people, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who will skip it or tune it out, but there's going to be a lot of people who will also pay attention and who will find it interesting. The uh, Gone with the Wind was really a celebration of the lost cause mythology around the Civil War. And a lot of what we see in Death of the Nile, you know, when they say anything that has really to do with Egypt is very much a not a direct justification, but it's steeped in a justification for colonialism. And I think that making those things available to readers and to viewers has value. Fair enough. So speaking of the the Egyptians in the book, they didn't exist except to be, you know, a hindrance and a, a blight upon the pretty scenery, et cetera. And occasionally to help run the boat. Oh, yeah. The they servants. Didn't have a white person who could be doing it instead. The, they were definitely the servants. Yeah. The steward did this, the blah, 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 blah. But they're, you know, okay. In the A&E movie, again, similar thing. We did have one of the Egyptian men on the boat actually talk have lines and help the plot along by answering some of Poirot's questions. I was like, they oh. They're perfectly functional lines. Yeah, but, I mean, but yeah. they were there. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, that's an improvement on the book. And then in the movie, <laughs> the 2022 movie, uh, no, they're like completely removed again. In fact, at one point during some of the drama part, I said to him as we were saying, what happened to all the people who work on this boat? They have all like left for the night and then they come back at one point to lock everybody in. But they're literally, I mean, they're just, they're just non-existent. They just, 
they're you, you actually see all of the servants getting off of the boat and being told to come back in the morning at various yeah. points yeah the they're not important they're not they're completely right. tangential to the to anything i will say that besides that that change and the changes that i've mentioned earlier the a and e version which i want to talk about now there's not a lot to say about it because it was so very closely mm -hmm. uh, like just i mean i won't say shot for shot but it is it is right there yeah it's a very faithful adaptation yes. they condensed some of the characters Thank which God. yeah worked fine they left out the plot about colonel race looking for the uh, political agitator who turned out to be the archaeologist those no good archaeologists <laughs> every one of them's terrible Agatha Christie was married to an archaeologist. I just have to imagine that, like, he made her mad over dinner one night, and she's like, "You know what? I'm going to make the next one of my next bad guys an archaeologist." And he was like, "That's too on the nose. Everyone will suspect." And so she made the archaeologist an agitator, <laughs> not the murderer. It that might be the case, but actually, there is a history of both archaeologists and ethnographers working as espionage agents. Because they can go into and out of places and carrying a lot of equipment without too much trouble. They tend to have a set of knowledge that's actually pretty good for decoding and encoding things. They can store, you know, they've got tons of paperwork. Nobody's going to want to look through it. <laughs> uh, there, there is a long history of archaeologists actually working in intelligence. A person once told me, that, you know, you can get in almost anywhere if you're wearing a safety vest and carrying a clipboard. <laughs> yes, that person was me. It is true. I have found this out through experience. <laughs> this is this podcast is for educational purposes only. <laughs> <laughs> also, Michael Weston from Burn Notice said that. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I should say, we well, were watching the episode of Burn Notice. Michael Weston said that. You said, well, that's far-fetched. And I said, well, let me tell you about some places I've been. <laughs> well, no, because you've actually just said the whole thing with the safety vest. I don't think Michael Weston wore a safety vest. He just had the clipboard. But... That's true. I had I had a safety vest and a hard hat. Yeah, you can get it anywhere. Okay. <laughs> Regardless, the A&E version, this definitely is the Poirot that I imagine. His mustache was, was definitely there. It looked like its own little creature. It was very shiny. It was distracting and, and gross. I, I think it's weird because... That actor, he doesn't move his mouth. Like, I'm a big mouth mover when I talk. That sounds weird, but it's true. My whole my whole face is engaged when I speak. And this British man who barely opens his mouth when he speaks at all. And then he's got the big mustache. And so, like, he would be talking, but it literally didn't look like he was engaging in the world. Do you know what I mean? And I mm -hmm. find it. And the same thing with the Kenneth Branagh, but at least Kenneth Branagh's eyes are a little bit more expressive. And that, that mustache had its own personality, too. It practically had its own zip code. I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. The A&E version, a very faithful adaptation. I appreciated what it did. There were definitely moments, though, where you're like, wow, this is definitely a made-for-TV thing. And I have to wonder if they were taking it very seriously. There was one point... In particular, the maid has been stabbed. <laughs> yeah. first, first off, we open the closet door to find the stabbed maid. And Matthew goes, she's clearly breathing. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not even subtle. It was really obvious that the actress who's playing a dead body is breathing. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, when they do the whole, let me tell you what happened, 
and then we're going to show it to you in Cinevision where it's like that the lighting is just a little off. So, you know, it's a flashback when Jacqueline comes running into the room with the knife to come after the maid. Matthew, tell us what we heard. We heard the from Psycho. Seriously, as she was stabbing her. And we both I, I, just laughed. It didn't sound like the music from Psycho. It was, was the music from Psycho. And that just totally takes you out of it, first of all. And also, it just makes it campy. I mean, it just, okay. So, Which is a shame, because by and large, of the two films, I think that the made-for-TV one was actually the better movie. But it did have those moments where you're just like, what? Right. And then for me, one of the other moments that it had was in the depiction of Tim Allerton and his mother. So Matthew, talk to us about Tim and his mommy in the book and then Tim and his mommy in the movies. There's a trope in a lot of fiction from the late 19th, even into the early 20th century, where a man is very close to his mother and it's considered a fairly normal, wholesome thing. I've always thought that this trope felt a little too much like Norman Bates. And in fact, I kept referring to him as Norman Bates when Kaylee and I would talk. But it, it's clearly just there. She's his mother and he's devoted to his mother and it's not supposed to be creepy. And and but it reads as creepy. It, OK, it reads the book read as a, as weird. Definitely a little like that's different. And then I was like, is this coded? Is he gay? Is that what we're trying to get through here? Is that like he's a mama's boy and like, you know, he's going to stay a bachelor, quote unquote, a bachelor his whole life so that he can like take care of his mother. Like, maybe that's what this is. The mother is definitely threatened by his friendship relationship with his cousin, Joanna. And cousin, don't be dissuaded. People fuck with their cousins all the time, apparently, in England. But the point is that, like, she's bothered by this relationship. And at the first part of the book, you're like, oh, she's jealous. And then later on, it's like, no, I think she knew that there was definitely some shenanigans happening with the stealing of of the jewelry. And so that's she i don't think she knew exactly but the cousin was part of that and so there's a reason why the mom would kind of be like you know she's gotten my boy mixed up into something nefarious blah blah blah, blah. okay well we should say that uh they're specifically part of the aristocracy england by and large is not inbred but the british aristocracy is as inbred as an alabama pentecostal church wow <laughs> but okay um, send your hate mail too yeah please don't um anyways so yes weird a little like okay of the time i don't know is he gay i'm not sure they and then we get the a and e movie where it's even more so he is kind of foppish he's the one aristocracy guy his hair is all floofy he is like a pouty insolent character like it's it's very odd and then Rosalie likes him. She alibis him, whatever. And and he accepts her alibi. You know, they're having this conversation. And in the book, they have this conversation. She's like, I kind of alibied you because I like you. And he's like, oh, oh, really? And, you know, she's a good girl. And maybe she'll help him get on the straight and narrow. And I, whatever. In in the movie, though, in the, in the TV, Annie, she's like, I like you. And she kisses him. And he literally says, you are barking up the wrong tree. And then his mother says, Tim and comes out of their shared cabin in like her nightgown and he says coming mother and then he follows her into the room and Rosalie's like oh 
and that's the end of that and it was like oh my god it's not even yeah. subtle gross they, <laughs> and they actually like they they show his mother saying that and she's kind of looking out and it's like wait are they saying what i think they're saying and then they pan back to rosalie and tim and then they pan back to the mother and she's like flirtily tapping on the door jam and it's just like yeah they're saying that oh Oh my goodness. So that is a change. And I don't know if like the people making that were like, well, this was implied in the book that I like just didn't want to go there in when I was reading the book. And they were like, we're going to make it really obvious for people in the 90s to, you know, or the I guess the early 2000, 2004 to know what's going on here. Or if they just wanted to, to put something extra splashy in because the rest of this had been so cut and paste. I'm not sure. I was very worried. And then about what they were going to do in 2022. And in 2022, they just made her an overbearing mother who mm -hmm. nobody's good enough for her son. Definitely still part of the aristocracy, all of that. Did you get the vibe, though, that one of the reasons why she didn't like this Rosalie was that she was black or just that she was low class or just that she was like a woman who was working for a living or what? They left it very, very vague. Intentionally vague, I feel like. Yeah, so here's the thing. I think that the made-for-TV movie was the better movie. I think that with another draft of the script, the 2022 movie could have been a really excellent movie, but they didn't quite go where they needed to to make it excellent. Hmm. You know, let's, let's talk about the fact that they bring in a much more ethnically diverse cast. Yeah. That's potentially fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got like uh, the Pennington's replaced by cousin Andrew, who's he's clearly of Indian descent, but he speaks with an upper class British accent. Right. OK, so you've got this guy whose family is clearly from a place that is under the brutal control of the British colonial government, visiting another location that is under the you know brutal control of the British colonial government. At one point, he even makes a comment about how he hadn't told anybody he had a gun. Because if they see a brown person with a gun, they'll hang me before they you know, even have a chance to ask why I've got it. They're clearly hinting at some interesting things, but they never really come out and deal with that, mm -hmm. which is a shame because there's so much you could have done with that. And it would have made for a much better story. Similarly, you've got Salome, the blues singer. And her niece, who's her manager, the niece is clearly a superb businesswoman. They're from Louisiana. They're Black Americans in a European colony, which introduces some really interesting potential dynamics. But they're never really explored in any meaningful way. There's references made, but not much else. At one point, you know, they talk about, oh, yeah, when Lynette was a kid. She didn't want to share a pool with me because I'm black. But then, you know, when she got older, she became my friend um, and was very kind. It and, and the line that Salome says is, you know, if if I was going to go kill everybody who was, you know, basically racist to me my whole life, there'd be a lot of dead white ladies all over the yeah. place. But like, I, but yeah, where, where I'm going with this, though, is that rather than being something where they try to explore okay well what's how are these characters navigating the world and especially when they go into a british colonial area where things are going to be in some ways simpler but in some ways more complicated and which again would be really interesting instead they have a few lines that essentially establish that lynette was taught poorly by her dad but she grew up to be a good white person 
Lynette is white, but she's Jewish white. And to some people, mm-hmm. that's there's a different. Well, she's of uh, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. Oh, yeah. yeah. And at this point in time, there definitely would have been considered a huge difference. Right. The fact that her cousin's clearly from an Indian family indicates that there is some ethnic mixing in her family. Again, that could be explored. That could be interesting. Now, the story you would have would be you could still have the basic outline of Death on the Nile, but with a whole lot more in it. And that would have been a much better movie. Yeah. Yeah. But instead, we got Poirot's tragic backstory. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which didn't it, connect to anything it really didn't it was 20 minutes of just character development of a character that only unless you're going to watch murder on the orient express and this movie and the next one a haunting in venice which comes out later this year otherwise it doesn't matter that this this whole 20 minute backstory thing and and i found that frustrating and i'll say there's another way that you could have had the more ethnically diverse cast and had it work, which is you could have basically just got, gone the uh, direction that like the TV show Briscoe County Jr. went where, you know, you just don't remark on it. It's just a given. There's black people, there's Indian people and, so on, and everybody just kind of accepts it. It's a it's not the real world. It's a fictional past. Mm. And I, th- I don't think that would be as good a film no. if you're not addressing that. But I do think it can work. And the fact that the 2022 movie was hyper stylized like in the uh made for tv movie i don't know if they filmed it in egypt they very well may have but it looked like the real egypt whereas the 2022 movie everything looked like a science fiction set yeah so it's like if you're already going into the essentially a fantasy land you can do that fantasy any number of ways and make it work so another thing that I want to keep moving us along here is that in the book, it's heavily implied that Lynette stole Simon from Jacqueline out of jealousy because, you know, basically she wants to be able to have everything. And she, you know, something that she doesn't have is obviously now something that she wants. But the 2022 film, according to this reviewer, presents it that Lynette just happened to fall in love with her best friend's fiance. There was no jealousy involved. There's little shown absence of the character's haughty attitude, making Lynette seem nicer in the film than she was in the book. And I will agree with the first part of that. She shows up at this dance thing. She seems genuinely happy for her friend who's getting married. Then she goes off to dance with the fiance and they've got chemistry. Apparently that's all it takes. It doesn't seem intentional. But after that, she doesn't doesn't seem very nice after the fact whereas Lynette in the book to me didn't seem mean she just the 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 jealousy and taking she seemed very entitled and also very immature yeah and 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 but not cruel just oblivious to other people yeah more thoughtless than cruel yeah yeah and I think that they kept her that way actually in the A&E tv show yes but in the 2022 she's much more sexualized um, not only her wardrobe is sexier, her actions are sexy. She literally at one point talks about having sex during the day. Like, you know. Oh, oh not at one point. At multiple right. points. But like this somebody comes says, up. you know, oh, you're not going to join her in bed. And she's like, we've already made love three times today or whatever. She like stalks out of the room. And it's like, I, I, okay. I didn't like that. I didn't find her particularly likable in the movie, which was disappointing because I like Gal Gadot. But also I just found 
her not believable like in the way that she talked about sex and this Mm -hmm. and that and i know people in the 30s talked about sex i get it but like this aristocracy lady i there were moments in that and that was one of them and the music was another where i kind of went is this right for the time it just doesn't feel quite right it feels like they've made a choice here to make the movie splashy and interesting and pushing the um, and edgy without making it make a lot of sense but i know you have thoughts on opinions on the and knowledge about the music so tell us about that Mm -hmm. Okay, well, first off, I, I actually want to hit on something you're saying, which is in the novel and in the made-for-TV movie, I, I know I kept saying I was rooting for it to turn into a slasher flick because so many of the characters were just so unlikable. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, the comparison to the slasher flick might actually be appropriate. It's very common in a lot of the especially cheap slasher flicks to make the characters who are going to be killed unlikable so that the audience can root for them getting killed and not feel bad about Mm -hmm. it. And I do wonder if part of the reason why some of these characters who end up being killed were unlikable was essentially the same thing. You're okay with them getting killed. You're okay with it just being part of the puzzle game you're playing because you didn't like that character to begin with. Well, I could almost buy that, but the maid didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but again, Agatha Christie being a very upper-class British person, this is a, she's, the maid's a foreigner. Yeah, that's true. Who is uh, of the servant class and is attempting to get in on her betters, so. Off with her head. To you and I, that wouldn't make her unlikable, but to Christie, it probably did. (laughs) Yeah, expendable, I would feel like. Yeah. She's probably expendable. So. I don't know. Also, like Mrs. Otterbaum, that was the authoress who was drunk and like that was a relief for her daughter that she's dead now, too. Mm-hmm. I think that the only death we're really supposed to feel sad about is Lynette's. And in the book, I didn't feel sad about Lynette's death. I mean, actually, I will say I felt sadder about Lynette's death in the book than I did in the, in the movie. But even then, like you knew somebody was going to die and it was probably going to be her. Like it was, you know, it was just all over the place. You basically got yeah. on that boat with like a an arrow over her head said soon to die, soon to die. So, yeah. OK, but talk to us about the music. So the music's kind of interesting in the uh, 2022 film. I kept thinking as we were watching it that, man, they'd have scenes where somebody's singing. And I kept thinking that doesn't sound like somebody singing that sounds like a record, an old recording of somebody singing. And I was right. Oh, okay. And specifically, it was Rosetta Tharp, who is awesome. Oh. If you've not listened to Rosetta Tharp, pause this, go look up Rosetta Tharp. You'll be glad you did. In the 1940s, she was recording music that was considered at the time gospel or jazz that we would now classify as either Chicago electric blues or rock and roll. And she was very, very good at it. Favorite singer of Johnny Cash. Big influence on Elvis Presley. They have her doing that music in the 30s in the film. Rosetta Tharp actually was recording it in the 40s and the 50s. So they got it about 10 years too early, but the music's pretty cool, so I'm not going to (laughs) complain. Rosetta Tharp herself is an interesting character, though, because essentially it was well known that she was actively in a romantic relationship with another woman while she was at the peak of her gospel music career. Hmm. Whether she was lesbian or bisexual is open to question. Most people seem to think she was probably bisexual. So you've got this likely bisexual black woman producing rock and roll, 
before rock and roll had a name and playing it arguably better than anybody would until the 1960s. It, it, it's cool. And again, <laughs> look her music up. She was a fantastic guitar player. She played this like Chicago blues style music, arguably is one of the originators of it. And uh, it was just really fantastic. If you're into Buddy Guy or Howlin' Wolf or any of them, you got to check out Rosetta Tharp because she was just great. Very cool. Thank you for doing the legwork on that. I do want to springboard from that to the lesbian couple that we do get in the 2022 version, which is when we take uh, Mrs. Van Schuyler and instead of her having a nurse, she's got a lesbian life partner who apparently still dresses in old frocks and passes as a servant, Even, but then they sleep together in, the, in right. their... In their... <laughs> Which, which we know because the bed was still made in the way that the bed had been made when we got on the thing. So obviously she, nobody was sleeping in this bed, he says. That's how we know that they're lesbians. Right. It, it, we should say she is introduced in the film as a nurse. Mm -hmm. But Miss Van Schuyler in the, film, in the 2022 film is not the frankly obnoxious classist misanthrope she is in the book and in the previous no, we've film. got a little bit of ferguson put in here she's the one who's like oh these pure you know like whatever like she she's kind of speaking it out and like rah, 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 mm -hmm. except that she's still like having bowers carry her bags for her you notice the casting of this lesbian couple share oh yeah so if anybody remembers the 90s comedy absolutely fabulous it was uh french and saunders were the two lead characters who were not romantically involved, but were lifelong close friends who were also just kind of horrible people who did horrible things in hilarious ways. Well, they play the lesbian couple in this movie. I have to say, like, I'm usually pro-lesbian couples, obviously. I'm not sure it was necessary to, like, to make this couple. Like, I guess I what it felt to me was like, oh, we're changing everybody. Let's change these two. What's a simple change that'll also mm -hmm. be splashy and edgy and fun? lesbians which uh, again gets back to what i was saying earlier about you know okay well we need to introduce a more ethnically diverse cast and not have it be all white and then they just sort of have half-baked ideas about that yeah where you know really if you're gonna do that either just have it ha decide that your world is a fantasy world where that doesn't matter that's fine or do that and then deal with what that means because that's a more interesting story yeah so I know that I still have things on my notes that I didn't get to. And I know you probably do too, but we have been talking for a very long time. Can we do our um, our final wrap-up thoughts? Are you ready for that? I'm absolutely ready. Okay, great. Tell me, Matthew, was this book and TV adaptation and film and or, were they all worth your time? Which ones? Why or why not? The book was not worth my time, but if you like puzzle mysteries, it might be worth your time. The made-for-TV movie, if I had to consume the story one way or another, I would choose that. Um, it was a fairly well-made TV movie, leaving aside the two points that we brought up. But again, I'm not really into the puzzle mysteries, so it it doesn't do much for me but if you like puzzle mysteries if you're a fan of you know sherlock holmes murder she wrote stuff like that you might like this one so go ahead and check it out the 2022 movie i would say is not worth anybody's time because it's just 
the filmmaking is so highly stylized that you're essentially in a fantasy world with a story that really needs to be more grounded. And the use of a very talented cast was just kind of half-baked. But I will say it was one script rewrite and some more restrained filmmaking away from being an excellent movie. But because it falls short in the specific way it falls short, it's not a, well, they reached for the stars and didn't quite make it, so this is impressive. It's a, well, they didn't reach for the stars and they should have because then they would have made a good movie. So I would actually say I think the 2022 movie was just a bad movie. And speaking of Grounded, I, I know we're not going to get into it because we have to wrap up here, but like literally at one point, Lynette styles herself as Cleopatra. Oh, God. Movie. Yeah. It is so. And there's all of this Cleopatra, Mark Antony, let's have sex next to these boulders. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So here's, I'm going to agree with you for the for mostly here. I agree. This is uh, the the puzzle book, which is, you know, fine. It's, it is the prose is more like a play it, it's a lot of dialogue a lot of mm-hmm. repetitive dialogue the quick fix is either comforting or frustrating but if you it, it's an agatha christie book you know what you're gonna get with an agatha even if you've never read an agatha christie book i feel at this point in our culture you kind of understand what you're gonna get in an agatha christie book and this is a quintessential agatha christie book so if you're into agatha christie and you haven't read it you should read it because it's an agatha christie book if however you're like oh I don't want to read about people being described as human clusters of flies, etc. Don't read this book. It's fine. You don't have to read it. There's other books out there. And if you're intrigued and you want to deal with the Agatha Christie puzzle situation, I think that the A&E special was just was perfect in that regard. Like it had all the things and it wasn't as obviously racist because it was made in 2004 and it was fine. And I think it kind of hit all the parts of the story that works for the people who the story works for in a good way. And I would say, obviously, we've talked to this one to death, dun, dun, dun. but if you're into it, there, there's all of those episodes that A&E, it's on Prime. You can buy each of them for $3 or buy the whole series or whatever and, and probably even get them from your library. It ran for years, years and years. There's 70 episodes of this. And the production values were good. It did look like they were in Egypt. They also used the psycho music during the stabbing scene. So, (laughs) you know, like maybe maybe it's not high caliber, but it was good caliber. As for the 2022 movie, I cannot recommend it, except that I feel like this is one of those movies that maybe it's fun to watch when you're drunk and other things are going on or or maybe make it into a drinking game or if you're going to have like a marathon or i don't know i can't even then you know I what actually know. i i can think of the absolute perfect way to watch this movie <laughs> with the silhouette of a janitor and two robots on the bottom of the screen making wisecracks i mean that might actually work i i can't recommend this movie i think if you want to see the story in in you know on your screen the A&E version is the way to go. And if you're not interested, if, you, if you're if you just watching it because of the names, they all of these people are in better things. Mm-hmm. Many, many other better things. I don't know why else you'd watch it. You're either watching it because you want to see the Agatha Christie on the screen, in which case you should go watch the A&E, or you're watching it because you love Gal Gadot, in which case go watch Wonder Woman, not the 1984 one, but the but the good one, the original one. You know, if if 
if you're like, you know, that character from Game of Thrones, the redhead you you get or you vet who said, you know, nothing, Jon Snow. If you love her, this is not the movie to watch to see her. She's in it, sure. But man, she's better in Game of Thrones. Everybody's better in their other things. Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. That's it. That's that's my thoughts. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this just as a parting thought. Now that I've read this, even if I had liked it, I don't think I'd ever read it again because I've gone back and reread some of the mystery stories I read when I was younger and that I enjoyed when I was younger. And now that I know the answer to the question, there's just no excitement in it. I have gone back and reread, you know, American crime fiction writers of this time, some of the books multiple times. And because those books are about something other than the big reveal of who did the what, they have reread value, whereas mm-hmm. this, I just don't feel like it does. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree. There's no reason to reread a Christie book. I have two little things to say at the very end here. One is the next in the Kenneth Branagh series of Poirot, A Haunting in Venice, which is an adaptation of Halloween Party, is scheduled to be released in September of this year. Branagh will once again direct and be Poirot, and we will not be covering it on this podcast. Just gonna just say right there and final thought here the 2022 film was indeed nominated for the best action adventure film at the 47th saturn awards matthew it lost to top gun maverick and here's the thing you can say a lot of bad stuff about top gun maverick in terms <gasps> you of better its pol- not hey, no, hear me out <laughs> oh. in terms of its politics in terms of what mm. it's saying about warfare mm. you can talk a lot about that but damn it was a well-made movie and it was an actual action adventure <laughs> yeah it was a very well-made movie um whereas i don't i have to, why was this an action adventure <laughs> you know i guess there was one scene where they ran around a little bit. <laughs> it, the 2022 movie really felt to me like somebody had hired Zack Snyder to make a, a Agatha Christie movie. And I don't know why anybody would do that. It just made me think of Zack Snyder. And I don't like Zack Snyder's movies. Okay. So. okay. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, Matthew, it has been really fun talking to you about this book and movie and movie combo. And you're going to come back and talk to me again later um do we want to you know what we'll, we won't say it now but watch our social media which is kmma underscore media on instagram um, watch kmma media on facebook watch the pages and popcorn thing on facebook watch my twitter and my tiktok or whatever and we'll be telling you the next book and movie combo that matthew will be back to talk about it is another detective story but it is a very different detective story and that is coming later in the spring or early summer so i'm excited about that groovy (laughs) indeed thank you so much matthew and i guess that's it all right what what did you say um this book was about the heiress in denial what did you make you Right. Well, if you put this on as like a tag or button, just assure your listeners that I am fucking hilarious. Yes. Yes. You're very funny.